0: Hey everyone, welcome to the Communication Coach Podcast, where I'm going to help you to create successful change through powerful and honest conversations. I am your host, Nikki Perfect. Hi, Jo. Uh, welcome to Conversations from the Coffee Shop. I'm so pleased to have you here. You have, in my opinion, what is an amazing story and also links in very well with our communication podcast and the aspects of communication with people. So please, over to you, share, please share your story with uh, our listeners and with me. That would be great. Thank you.
1: Oh, thank you, Nikki. Uh, so my, I guess my story started a long time ago now in, in 1984. Um, when I was 27. And at that time, um, I was someone who very much believed that peace was possible in the world. And I was passionate about creating a world and I, I for me, the way was through inner peace, I used to meditate. But on the 12th of October 1984, something happened that changed how I saw the world. I woke up to the news that a bomb had gone off at a hotel in Brighton. And I knew that my father and my stepmother were staying at the hotel because it was the Conservative Party Conference and my dad was a Tory MP. And I knew almost straight away that somehow he wasn't going to survive. And it took about eight hours to finally hear they would found his body. And I didn't just lose my dad in that bomb. I lost the, the part of me that felt that I could create peace in the world by meditating and that I was a free spirit because now... I have an enemy. Someone it was the IRA. They chose to plant a bomb which killed my dad. And it must be about two days later. I made a decision. I thought, if I can create something positive out of this, if I can find a way to understand those who killed my father, if I can contribute to peace, then maybe I'm going to be okay. So it was a different kind of peace I was now going for, and a new journey started. And my emotional intelligence was pretty zero back then, and I had no idea how to bring something peaceful and out of the terrible, terrible trauma I was feeling. But I trusted that life was going to give me the experiences. And it did. A few weeks later, I had um, a moment which gave me a clue as to how I could change from having an enemy to be able to understand them. And that was I ended up sharing a taxi with a complete random stranger. Um, it was late at night and we were both looking for a taxi and weren't that many around so we shared one. We were going to a similar place and I could tell from his accent he came from Northern Ireland and I knew that's where the IRA came from so I said to him, this is a bit of an odd question but I'm trying to understand why someone would join the IRA. Do you know? My dad's just been killed by the IRA and he said to me, no, that's not strange at all because my brother was in the IRA, and my brother was killed last year by a British soldier. So this is at the height of the conflict, the war, and we should be enemies. But we spoke of a world where peace was possible, where there were no enemies. And I, I left that taxi thinking I built a bridge across the divide. And even though no one knows, I know. I could have seen this, this man as my other, but instead we're sharing our, our dreams of a different world. A different future. And so that building a bridge that was the first time it kind of came to me. And I travelled to Northern Ireland in 85 and 86 and met many people. And it was the most extraordinary time to be there as an English woman, a young English English woman. But I learned loads. But it wasn't that safe for me to be there. Um and it was only in the peace process that my life changed again. In two thousand, so it was a long time now, 16 years after, I got invited to the first support workshop for people who had been affected who lived in England. And there were many of us in England, but because we all lived all over the place, um, it wasn't like we could ever meet, or we didn't know know of each other. So I started attending a workshop program in in, um, the Wicklow Mountains, south of Dublin. And that was an amazing time to deal with the trauma, which I'd completely um, suppressed and hadn't really processed at all. We were offered no support back in 84. I mean, there was nothing. And therefore, I I did not have the the means to process Mm. that level of pain. So I suppressed a lot of it. And during the year 2000, it was a very amazing time where I felt some rage and pain and let it go. And I changed a lot. And um, in, would it be 99, the one person who was sentenced for planting the the Brighton bomb came out of prison and I didn't know he was going to come out of prison. And I, and I remember when I saw it on the TV, being, being quite angry, thinking it's all right for you. You've got the rest of your life back. My dad can't come back.
2: Mm.
1: But then thinking this is for peace. This means less people are going to be killed. So I, I welcome it. And the idea of meeting him um, became quite sort of like strong. And it was something I wanted to do. But I didn't really tell anyone. It took me ages to start telling people because people would have thought I was completely like, you know, bonkers for wanting to meet him. But it came from a a real need inside me. And it wasn't to change him. It wasn't to blame him. It wasn't to make him wrong. It wasn't to get an apology um, because that wasn't going to help me. It was to actually see him as a human being and see his humanity because I knew age 10 he wouldn't have said, "When I grow up, you know, I want to, I want to plant bombs and kill people." Um so, what happened between those years, you know? And what's the, what's his story? And if I humanized him, that was going to help me. So I was quite clear. I was meeting him to help myself. And towards the end of two thousand, uh, a friend of mine organized the meeting in Dublin. Now, I do restorative justice work, and and it's all about you know, preparation, having facilitated safe space for nothing, broke all the rules. I'm literally going off on my own from where I lived in North Wales to Dublin on, on a ferry to meet the guy who killed my father. And I was terrified, absolutely <laughs> terrified. I didn't want to blame him, but how would I feel sort of sitting with him? Now, I never told anyone, so I didn't, I wasn't worrying about what other people were going to think. At least I didn't have to worry about that. I was just myself and that was big enough. I mean, it was hugely hugely challenging but what was odd is there was a something like a still part of me that I trusted just really wanting me to go that impulse and I trusted that impulse and I remember I remember so well that first meeting and um I was in someone's kitchen and and there were lots of other people around and I remember him walking in and I got up and shook his hand and thanked him for coming and he thanked me for inviting him Mm -hmm. and we went to our own room and those was three hours and I looking back on it I was more present to him than I think I've ever been to anyone in my life I was completely present I, I listened to him I was curious so he started off by giving me a lot of political righteousness you know how the Catholics were badly treated and what the English did and talking about events that I knew a lot about. And I had met other men in the IRA and I was prepared for that. And He did come with a righteousness, almost justification. Like this was a strategy that
2: enabled them in the end to be heard. And therefore for him, it worked. And
1: I, I knew he was gonna say that. And it was also hard to hear it because he's basically justifying killing my father. But I'm curious, I'm curious as to what else is he thinking, feeling? And I actually shared a poem i would written for him. And I think that's the beginning of him being disarmed because in the poem, when I shared it with him, he was like, well, how could you write that before you met me? Because it's about me, he said.
2: Mm-hmm. And
1: so he felt that I was empathizing with him in the poem. And it was called Bridges Can Be Built. Um, and then, but he, kept, he still kept up this quite quite hard kind of justification. And I thought, well, I've got what I want from this meeting. I see he he cares for his community. And that's why he joined the IR right now. I, you know, I'm never going to think the Vance works, but I can see that he did it because he wanted to protect his community. He thought deep he was a deep thinker. He got a PhD in prison. You know, it wasn't just a momentary decision. He spent months grappling with it and saw it as his way of responding to the struggles um i thought god i want from this i'm going to go now and then that's when he changed and he said to me i don't know anymore who i am can i hear your anger can i hear your pain and what can i do for you i've never met anyone so open
2: mm.
1: and he said later on he'd never been listened to like that by like anyone and the fact that i had disarmed him. He said my empathy disarmed him, not during that meeting, but later on he would say that's what happened. Um, and so he changed and he stopped saying, we felt this and started saying, I, and the tone of his voice changed. And he asked, started asking questions about my dad. And of course, when he planted that bomb, he didn't see anyone in the hotel. It was just a legitimate target. And that, that's what happens with violence. Mm. He demonized them. But now he's realizing for the first time that he has been guilty of demonizing the other in the same way he accused the other of demonizing them. And that he began to realize he actually killed a wonderful man. And that was the first time. And so that part of the meeting was intense and in a different way.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And I was managing parts of me that found it difficult to be there as well Uh, as well as listening to Patrick McGee and I reached my limit after three hours and that's when I said I'm going to go now and he said I'm really sorry I killed your dad now I didn't go for an apology but I got more than an apology I got a sense that he is now seeing my dad as a human being and that that is another kind of justice for me that's that's a it's a deeper sense of something's being restored, um, and and I said to him, "I'm so glad it's you." And then I left, and he didn't know what that meant until we we met. Then three weeks later, when he asked, and I said, "It's your." I couldn't have predicted how prepared you were to open up and see my dad as a human being. Mm. I was not expecting that, and that. Um, I don't think many would, and I still don't think many would, but he he did, and his journey started. So that was 20 years ago, and he just sent me something today. He's he's um we're still in touch, we we we've become friends. He's just written this book and it's been published, so he's he sent me a, a just sent me a podcast that I hadn't actually listened to, and he said the message is to his surprise, he was asked to share that poem on the podcast. Um, and I know that poem still means a lot to him, so I'm going to listen to it later. Mm-hmm. So it has been difficult at times. It's been hugely challenging. But more than that, it's what I've learned, the skills I've learned in myself, the, the values, the, the strengths, the self-awareness. I mean, there's so much that I have gained, you know, as a human being that I am grateful, despite the you know the challenges which um have also been lots
2: Mm.
0: yeah and i can well there's lot there's lots of questions that i want to ask but i recognize that when i ask questions i make that all about me and not about you (laughs) about what you
2: want to share That's that's fine do do i'd love to hear your questions thank you so for me everything
0: you have said around judgment around being present, around belief systems, um, has all come into that one conversation and the difference, I'm I'm a great believer, we were just talking before we came onto the recording, I, I personally am a great believer that if you can be present with somebody in a moment with somebody really listening to them and not being judgmental about their beliefs and taking them at face value, it can change lives. And here is, of course, I'm going to make myself right here because as humans, we love to be right, don't we? But here is a fantastic example of, you know, you spent three hours in there and made a conscious decision that when you went in there, you weren't going to judge him.
2: Yeah.
0: You are going to listen to him. Mm-hmm. And, and as a direct result of that, you have become friends with the man that killed your father. Yeah. Now there will be many people I'm sure who will listen to this and go, "How on earth did you have the strength of character to be able to do that at, in such a short time frame?" As well, um, I know the meeting wasn't in a short time frame, but your your decision—you said it was a couple of days. You made that decision before you got into the, even had that meeting with the taxi driver. You made a decision that you would deal with it in that in that peaceful way.
2: Yeah.
1: Yeah, I mean, I don't know how. I mean, I have two daughters now. I've got three, but they're two that are older than, than I was, and I look at them when we talk about it and they can't quite imagine how, you know, how it would have been for me. Of course, when I was 27, it felt quite old, but it, it wasn't really.
2: Mm-hmm. And I
1: think it's because I I cared so much about peace. I thought about war. I as a teenager I would have grown up with Vietnam on the TV and Northern Ireland and I hated it all and um, you know if, if I'd been born now that I probably would have done peace studies at university or I would have done a positive change maker program for young people but of course we didn't have that back then you know it was before um, yeah there were other people I, I did feel quite alone in having these concerns and um, so young mm. and I I found meditation as a a way to feel like I could contribute to the world and so that's why I think I chose this direction Um, and I knew meditation would never be enough um, because now in the real world people get killed and that was the wound I was addressing and I think I had to in order to survive if I hadn't made that decision I'm not sure I would have survived you know I I think I would have gone under and given up on the person I had been and I don't know what would have happened Mm. so I it was in a way it was a selfish it was to make myself feel better because now I have a purpose in life
0: yeah Uh, and um we were you know I just said about asking questions about human beings we are selfish we come up at life from our own selfish perspective and yours was and there's absolutely nothing wrong with that at all. It's just about being aware of that, isn't it? It's just about yep. being aware that what drives you might not be what drives somebody else. And sometimes when we have those conversations, especially around where we're challenging somebody's beliefs, and, and, and in this case, it, the belief was so strong that mm-hmm. um, he, he was willing to kill for his beliefs. Mm-hmm. And that still goes on across the world. And I know, you know, that you do a lot of work across the world, recognising that and talking to people and sharing those experiences that you've had to make people more aware of conscious communication and being with somebody. So, I mean, it's a fascinating story, but what, what happened next? So you've, you've met him, he's obviously written a book and, and now you often um, talk with Patrick, don't you uh, on stage about what was happening for- both of you there Can it- yes
1: we have done i don't know what's going to happen now um things are changing but in the last 20 years we've shared platforms over 300 times mm. in different places um and every time we share we we don't plan it we just start having a conversation like a private conversation on stage and then there's always a lot of time for questions and responses and people then make it their story because everyone's got stories of being hurt mm-hmm. and hurting. We've all hurt other people as well, and everybody's got stories of relationships being broken down. And we're not there to offer solutions, but through sharing our story, people then get in touch with some of their own humanity, or, or something happens. And and now my my vision is. It's almost um, more than him and me. So I'm, I'm doing a lot on and have done a lot on my own to to, know, to show people that there are other ways than going for blaming and revenge. Mm. Um, and that to actually heal and feel better, there needs to be like a, a letting go of the past, a letting go of revenge. But I never tell people what they have to do. I'm very sort of restorative in my approach, which is about I'm I'm with people, and it's through really that deep listening. And so I do a lot of one-to-one listening. I also do um workshops. I'm I'm creating courses in my process, everything I've learned, I'm passing it on to other people, but in a way, it's not about big PowerPoints and this theory, it's, it's about um someone said there's like it's like a gentle transformation, which I quite like. So it's where creating a space where people change, because what I've learnt is that change happens when people feel it inside themselves and they feel safe to make that change, not because people tell them to, or as you said, judge them, Um, and it can't just be from the head, it's got to be the heart and the emotions. Um, And I think I'm a very emotional person, and so that's, that's the area that I help people create change and I'm not scared of emotions you know I'm I'm it's something a lot of people get really scared and want to shut down if someone gets angry or upset and I'm um now I've changed I I'm I I can hold people in in their emotions does that make sense of of, of a way of being yeah yeah no that
0: that makes perfect sense um yeah and That's interesting, because you said that your younger self was very unemotionally intelligent. And so so, some of the things that you've said around going over and approaching life in the way that you approached it, Mm -hmm. it's interesting that you use that statement, when, from an outside perspective, Mm -hmm. it would appear that you were very emotionally (laughs) intelligent. But you, you were able to go in for that very early three hour conversation. Well,
1: it was fourteen years after. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Um,
1: so during during those years, you know, I yeah I started learning about emotional intelligence. Right. Yeah. And by the time I got to two thousand, um, a lot had happened. You know, and a lot's happened since then. You know, n- now I would say that I am strong in the whole area of emotional intelligence. Mm. Um. But it's like, but I. I wasn't, my childhood, my mum always says that we had two emotions, one was joy, and the other was tiredness, so I would think I was tired a lot as a child, because I was all <laughs> really naughty, in there, and so, you know, it was always, oh, Joe's tired. Now, of course, there's a whole range of emotions that children feel that we feel, and mm-hmm. I, one thing with my, with my daughters, I did a course, and um, I trained in something called parenting, which doesn't exist anymore, and it was all about acknowledging children's emotions and validating them and giving them space to feel and not labeling them and describing their behavior all the everything i've learned about conflict transformation and being present came from those when my daughters are very very little and Mm -hmm. i'd like practicing on them and um that i would do so much acknowledging and and that was one of the you know as parents there's always like things you wish you could have done better I've got loads of those but I I did the acknowledging emotions well and that also helped me with mine and, and the whole world of emotions but it, I learned about it. it didn't come I couldn't draw on my own experience as a child you know and I would tell them you know we are a no blame house so they kind of knew that you know this isn't about making anyone wrong but then if, if ever I did get into blaming them which I did you know I remember one time really bad i so stressed and They were all upset with me because I I was nasty. And then one of them was like, mom, can I remind you, we're a no blame house. Do you need a cushion for your anger right now? Because you're putting your anger onto us and that's not okay. And I'm like, part of me is thinking, oh my God, what have I produced? And the other part is thinking, oh, this is is clear. This is clear language, you know, job well done. As I reached for the cushion.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I I love that. Most of our um, teaching in negotiation stems from child psychology and about um, recognising the emotion first and then we deal with the behaviour afterwards. Because, yeah. because the majority of people, uh, and this isn't to say that they're right or they're wrong, it's just that there are other ways of doing things that get you a quicker result, I found. Yeah. Um, they, don't, they don't know that. They don't understand that. I have a 14-year-old and, and we have the same you know mantra we'll we'll look at the emotion first and you you mentioned something about when you deal with conflict with with other people about being in that space and and allowing the emotion whereas some people do walk away from the emotion because it's too difficult to get to um deal with or what happens is we give an emotional response back which then obviously causes more conflict and more anger and um just a big cycle of attitude behavior attitude behavior as in Batari's box um, so yes yeah so can you just um, so for those of you that don't know about Batari's box and um, Batari's box it starts with your attitude affects your behavior affects my attitude affects my behavior and goes around in a big cycle until somebody breaks it either by pushing the pause button walking away or, or in your case I'm guessing picking up a cushion sounds like your your family um trait for dealing with emotions which is which is a perfect way of um dealing with those emotions but can you just explain a little bit more to me about what you found with people um not being able to be with the emotion and the impact that then that then has in the conversation
1: oh well i think you're completely right about how, how you described that cycle um and you know, i'm doing a lot of restorative justice at the moment and in fact I'm, i've been asked you go into quite a lot of of conflicts and um, you know if if we keep talking about the issue so in terms of neighborhood dispute you know it can be um, where you put the the wall or where you parked your car Mm. and if we just talk about where we parked the car and try and work out who is right and wrong just not going to get anywhere because it's possible for both people to be right you know, I really believe that. And that's what, actually, that's what I learned from the conflict in Northern Ireland, that I have heard so many different stories from different people, from all, all the different sides and more. And when I listen to all of them, I, I, I go, oh yeah, I get you. Like, I understand that. You know, I hear what happened to them as children and then teenage and you think, yeah, you know, I understand why you do. I'm with you. But then they're all the different sides. So how can that be possible? And so I think that's that's when I realised that, sides don't exist, you know, unless we, we create them. Um, and so when I do my neighbor dispute, I, I'm able to empathize with both sides. And as a restorative practitioner, that that we, that's the nature of our work. Mm-hmm. Um, but if I get to the emotion behind it and go, um, you know, it sounds like, it's, you know, it's been really painful for you and and now now you're not feeling safe in your home and you're worrying a lot of the time and and that impacts yourself as a parent then i'm getting below the issue you know and touching their inner world with the emotions, so they start to feel held and and then having been listened to they might be able to let go of being so right it might take more than one go and actually sometimes in neighborhood dispute it, it doesn't ever get beyond that and it it does because we can't do any more work um now if i say to people who are feeling you know and you i hear it said to children a lot you know you're overreacting you know i wouldn't get upset about that and all that's happening is the person's feeling more and more isolated Mm
2: -hmm. and
1: perhaps beating beating themselves up about their emotions or feeling maybe stronger in their determination to take action you know um and if they weren't feeling angry they might get angry
2: mm-hmm. and
1: and so it's it's causing more harm and then i think people then also want to rescue and go i think you should do this that will make you feel better and i think that's not very helpful either because when people are feeling things then they're not in touch with their thinking as much but they're not you know depending how flooded they are um and then they might agree to something which um, actually isn't the answer for them. So that is not very helpful. Um, nor is sort of minimizing it. Um, nor nor is sort of, well I felt that the other day and this happened to me to take it back to themselves. I see that a lot. Mm-hmm. So for me that to be able to just say to someone, I can see your feeling, you know, we are right now there's absolutely furious, you know, you it kind of calms the nervous system down it, it calms the emotional system down and then we see with children that they can get back to thinking again and i think it's the same for adults mm-hmm. as well when we're really heard we, we can almost go ah oh, someone's someone's got me someone's heard me and then we can get back in touch with what do i need to do right now you know in order to in order to feel better what what, what else can i do it gives that space and it's that space which I think we all need right now, I'm doing, I was doing, I haven't done them for a bit, these pop-up Zooms where I call them pop-up caring Zooms, just asking people how they are and then holding them in, in whatever they're feeling. And I think more more than ever, we've got people who just need to be really listened to. I'm doing a lot of listening to young people uh, who are going through so much, or trauma, I think, trauma from the last year. Mm-hmm. So yeah, so I always say when my courses, if someone's, fi- showing emotions that's what you go for head for that and you know what if you get it wrong if you say oh you're feeling really angry and they go no I, actually i'm sad it's fine it doesn't matter it you know, is if the words are wrong don't worry it's, it's that preparedness to speak is that you can relate to this because of your work and your experience
0: no i can totally relate to this and um and, but, but when you put it into practice it, it is so true it's that being in touch with somebody's emotions at a deeper level mm-hmm. uh, so we always say say what you hear and say what you see because that way you never take the conversation onto you and what you want you keep the conversation on that person and mm-hmm. what they're going through at the moment and um, if we take you back to that first three-hour conversation Mm. sounds to me like because you were in that able to deal with the emotions and be in that emotional space with him Mm. there was no there was no conflict in the conversation it was a conversation where he he recognized how you felt you recognized how he felt Mm. You were both able to see each other as human beings who had very strong belief systems and values in your own rights And then to take that forward and create a whole new world where you can share through your story and your purpose now and just help other people in their lives. Because I don't know about you, but I believe this should be taught in schools, because if you teach schools to the young kids straight away, you help them to understand what's happening. And they then go into adulthood, really help them there. So, yeah, what what your thoughts around that you talked about young people and obviously it's an incredibly challenging time for young people at the moment so yeah yeah
1: no well I, I work in schools a lot even now um and i yeah i mean there are some people doing amazing work at the primary level in in this whole area you know and we need to work with parents to help them understand different way of parenting and um and I, I mean, I'd like to take this to a government level as well because it's got implications of how we do politics. Mm. It's implications how we do our prisons. It's how, you know, how as human beings we live with each other. And I, you know, I would love for the world to be more, whether you call it restorative or more emotionally intelligent, to, under, to understand the, the power of empathy rather than "I'm right, you're wrong," and because I believe you're wrong, like that gives me Permission to hurt you or not care. You know, I think if we do empathize with each other, it's going to be much care, more caring kind of just world. But it's very hard to to leave the. I'm right, you're wrong. You know, and I'm I'm so right. You know, I'm going to prove it to you. You know, I mean, I obviously don't agree with Patrick about the use of violence, but I've let it go. I've let go of, I guess, of being right and making someone else wrong. Um, I just don't find it very helpful, but it doesn't mean that sometimes I want to go back to that, take that position. You know, I, I can still get really angry with people, so I'm, I'm not I'm not always like that. But that's my aim, and that's that's how I, I see. We all have that in, in us as human beings to be, to move into beyond right and wrong position.
0: Mm. Yeah, it's um it's interesting because we we know we like to be right, you know, and we we'll, and we know we'll listen for things that make us right, mm-hmm. and then. We'll use it against the other person we we call it a, a combative listening where you listen to be right and only take the information that you want because it makes us feel valued and validated and often we'll end up surrounding ourselves with people who have the same values and belief systems as us to be valued and validated so how do you how do you take your restorative conversations in neighbourhood? around parking cars and I think I know where you're going to go with this but just for our listeners how do you go from that to going over to a war zone and having conversations um with people on opposite sides who are physically at war i can already see the similarities as i'm actually speaking it out loud because you are at war with your neighbor but but please share, share your views on that too
1: well it's it's very very hard to have these conversations in the middle of war because we have to have safety Mm-hmm. So I would really want to have the conversations before people start killing each other. I mean, then in, in the the legacy in Northern Ireland or from Bosnia, of pain and trauma is huge. Mm-hmm. You know, and and I think we're still dealing with the trauma of the last World War in, in the UK. I think people are still feeling it. But it's sort of being passed down. So certainly, you know, in the, in the middle of war, that's not the time to be having these conversations. And um, there's definitely research to shows that conflicts that have been resolved non-violently um, the peace process has much much um, more evidence is going to be sustainable and last than those that have used violence so, so um, there's amazing work being done like in Rwanda bringing people together I'm involved in have been to Palestine Israel where families are bereaved, bereaved from both sides meet and have amazing conversations And so it's a long time since I've actually been to another conflict, because I haven't moved anywhere for a year. (laughs) But in the old days, you know, for me, my story is about, it's almost about a a way of them seeing their conflict expressed back and reflected back in a different way, because they're not going to be triggered by the same things um, that people in Northern Ireland, like Northern Ireland is the hardest place for me to go, because it's such a trigger even now. But if I go to Palestine, Israel, then it's, chances are there's no one sitting there who's gonna be personally triggered. And that I think is the, the strength of, of people from different conflicts traveling around and being able to hear the same, it's the same issues, but hearing it in a way which isn't gonna trigger.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And in terms of any, any conversation, it's all about the preparation. I and mean, I would never bring people together if in the room, they're going to do the combative listening. Is that what you called? I love that. Where they're going to start attacking each other. Mm. So it's all about the preparation for me. Mm. Uh, it will take as long as it takes. Because if I am a working as a facilitator, then I'm responsible for the well-being in that room and that no one's going to be re-traumatized
2: mm. and that
1: people are going to listen to each other. And as we know, listening is is really difficult when there's pain, when there's trauma Um, and so I would have to risk assessment of whether that is possible and and I think when I mean you know when, when people can listen to each other who would have seen each other as enemies it's the most amazing thing to happen, it's miraculous, it's wonderful but actually it requires work and if I think back to myself I did my own preparation, I did my own risk assessment I had enough self-awareness to know what to do with the parts of me that wanted to blame him or judge him. So I was intensely listening to myself. Um, And I knew how to manage my own expectations. Um, So, um, in fact, someone analyzed the language of my second meeting, Mm -hmm. because it it was filmed. And she was a professor of linguistics. And she said, I facilitated Patrick McGee to, to open up. So I wasn't just there as the so-called victim, but I was facilitating. And it wasn't something I decided to do. It, it was what, I think I just did it because that would be the way for me to get my needs met. So I was like, okay, I know one would facilitate it because it was too early on in the peace process and I got turned down by a few people. So I thought, oh, do it myself. <laughs> um, so yeah, I think it's all about, to me, emotional safety. Mm-hmm and obviously physical safety as well.
0: Yeah. Well, it's just it's fascinating listening to you. Thank you so much for sharing your story. I'm also very uh, conscious of your personal time. There's things that are going on in your life. Um, but Joe, where can we find out more about you? Uh, is there something that you'd like to promote specifically at the moment? We met on, on Clubhouse, um, for those of you that are not on apple i believe that they are running it soon uh coming away from ios uh, integrating ios and other platforms but for me personally clubhouse is a great place to meet people actually and uh talk about things that have happened and meet people that you would never normally meet in in your life and you're a great example of that joe and i'm really been pleased to meet you and, and hear your stories and but, also the lessons and the emotions and about pe- being present and all of those things so if our listeners would like to find out more about you how can they do that
1: i'm so excited to meet you and i can't wait to have another conversation and hear more about what you're doing there's so much resonance and connection um so other than clubhouse my website um is dot com. And then I have a charity, buildingbridgesforpeace.org.
2: And I'm on LinkedIn. I'm on Twitter as Twitter, joeberry 9
0: Lovely. I'll put all of these in the notes at the end of the podcast as well. Um, Also with your... um, your charity so it's been a real pleasure it's been great talking to you i could talk to you for ages because as you say we do have a lot of similarities and it would be interesting to share further conversations so i look forward to speaking to you more yeah. outside of this so yeah thank you very much um and uh i shall end the recording there hey everybody nikki again hope you enjoyed today's podcast and thank you for joining me you can find me on social media at nikki comms coach at twitter and the communication coach on facebook and the communicationcoach.co.uk please like share and review and i look forward to speaking to you soon